0: So 20 years ago this month, the Akron Zips played the Marshall Thundering Herd in a football game. Raise your hand if you remember that game. Nobody remembers that game. You know, that's actually maybe not true. You might remember there was a defining moment that happened all these years ago uh, in Akron, Ohio, I guess. Uh, Marshall had a quarterback by the name of Byron Leftwich, who went on to play in the NFL, Uh, He broke his shin in the first quarter of that ball game and could barely walk. Looked like his season was over right then and there. But his team, Marshall, they fell behind late in the game. And Byron Leftwich comes back onto the field in the fourth quarter, hobbling around, trying everything that he can do in his power to bring his team back from that deficit. And you can still find these clips on YouTube that every time he threw the ball downfield and completed a pass to his receiver, Byron's offensive linemen would come on each side and lift him up on their shoulders, both feet off the ground, and carry him down the field to the next play, setting him down so that he could run the next play. You see this picture as a representation of what happened that night. Each and every time they moved down the field, Byron, unable to walk, was carried by his teammates. Now, I asked my offensive lineman to do that for me, and they didn't go for it. They said, "You're not hurt." And I said, "Yeah, but it would it would look cool. It would be inspiring." They didn't they didn't think uh, they didn't feel that way. Yo, know, I, I, when I think about that picture, if you want to go back and check out those those clips, it's just a fascinating picture of courage, of toughness, also of of teamwork and unselfishness. You know, those four in the fourth quarter, offensive linemen are tired. They, they were worried about the next play themselves, and yet they were more concerned with the good of their teammate and of helping the team to succeed. Well, so that's a good picture for sports. It's also, I hope, a helpful picture, at least today, of the church and how the church of Jesus Christ is meant to function. Because y'all, no secret here, the world in which we live, the culture in which we live, we have very much an every-man-for-himself mentality. But this is just one of the many ways that the the Christian church is called to be different. We don't function like the rest of the world. We don't look out only for ourselves. In fact, y'all, if if you were with us last week, we saw at the end of Galatians 5, this wonderful list of what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These divine qualities that God in his grace wells up within us those who have trusted in Jesus. It's just something God delights to do to transform us more and more into the character and the image of Jesus. But there's no sense in which those qualities just exist privately and personally. They're not just for you and me to hold on the inside. They're meant to spill out. They're meant to pour out in our relationships, and especially the relationships that we have one with another in the church. And so here it is. As we enter into this this final chapter of such a great letter, the Spirit of God we've seen transforms each individual Christian and therefore the Spirit of God transforms the church. If all of us collectively are growing in the fruit of the Spirit as God has promised, then of course the church is going to reflect it. And what God is doing in us Specifically and individually, it's going to show itself in harvest church and how we function. We can't be a church that merely depends on Jesus for his grace. We need to be a church that reflects Jesus in his heart. And so, this scripture today, if that's what we want to be, then this scripture for us is just paramount. Galatians chapter 6, look with me at verse 1. Paul is speaking to us, to the church. He says, Brethren, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, these commands right here at the beginning of the chapter are coming on the heels of what we read last week. If you read through chapter 5, you'll see it. What Paul calls this great contrast between the desires and the deeds of the flesh, the sinful passions and behaviors within us that act in opposition to God. But by contrast, we see the ministry of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who opposes our flesh and instead produces good fruit in us, a life that is pleasing to God. And so the command at the end of chapter 5 is, walk by the Spirit, don't merely live by the Spirit, by faith in Jesus, but live in such a way that the Spirit is manifested, showing forth. Walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. But what happens when we fail? The kind of stuff we don't like to talk about, we don't like to think about, especially not when we look in the mirror. I don't like to think that I could fail in this, but y'all, the <laughs> live a day or two. And it'll happen, right? What happens when we fail, when we fall short, when we do carry out the desires of the flesh? Or to use Paul's language here, what happens when someone is caught or ensnared in sin? Here's the answer. Verse 1. You who are spiritual, you who live and walk by the Spirit, restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. And that word restore, it literally means to reset a broken bone or a dislocated joint, to put it back into joint for the sake of health and well-being. And so y'all, what the scripture is calling us to is that when a fellow Christian within the church is caught up, overtaken by sin, the church is meant to mimic the heart of Jesus. And so this is not a side sermon here, but I just want to encourage us in this. For you personally, how does Jesus respond to you when you sin? What does he do? It may be different than what we would assume. When you and I, as those who belong to him by faith, when you and I sin, Jesus moves toward you, not away from you. And some of us aren't really certain that that might be the case. Some of us struggle to believe that. But that's the plain testimony of the Scripture. When those who belong to Christ sin, Jesus in heaven is drawn to us in His mercy. He's not repelled by us in disgust. And when Jesus comes to us in our sin, the Scripture says He advocates for us, meaning He stands up on our behalf. He applies His grace to you for your forgiveness and your cleansing and your restoration. He sets the broken bone back in place. He wants your good. He doesn't hold his nose in your presence. He comes to you in grace. And so we as the church, we have this amazing responsibility now to show forth that same divine grace, to reflect the heart of Christ. We seek to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Now, restoration involves confession and repentance. A person has to want to be restored. A person who refuses to see or acknowledge their sin they're unwilling to be restored in that case, and that's maybe beyond our control. But y'all, here's the truth. We can't force restoration with an iron fist. And so often I think that's our mentality because if we want to get somebody back in line, well, you know, you, you just, you coerce. You take a hammer to them, right? You can't gently bring a person back. But of course, that's the work of the Spirit. That's not the church's responsibility to bring the heart to repentance. What's the church supposed to do? We don't show up to the person's door hammer in hand, ready to knock them flat in hopes that we will bring them back to Jesus. No. Paul says, restore in gentleness. And y'all, we recall, I hope that's a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of those nine things that Paul shows us as coming from the Spirit in our lives. Eighth there on the list is gentleness. And part of how we become gentle, how we show forth this this uh, kindness and sweetness, is that we're willing to see ourselves for what we really are. It's called spiritual self-awareness. And you see that in verse 1 and 2. Paul says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You know, what that means is you and I, I know my own heart, hopefully. And I recognize my own vulnerability to sin. And therefore, I will not sit in judgment over you in your sin. I will not treat you harshly or ungraciously because I know at the very deepest level, you and I are both the same. We are both sinners and we are both saved entirely by grace, not by our own good efforts. And therefore, we stand on common ground. So I can be gentle with you and you can be gentle with me on the basis of God's mercy for us both. We don't stand in judgment over each other. We don't crush each other in hopes of correcting bad behavior. We can deal gently with one another because we know what we really are. We know we both need the same mercy. One day, perhaps I'll need it too. And I want you to be gentle with me. And so we look to ourselves and we understand that we're all in the same boat. Now, I, this, this whole idea of the church restoring and gentleness. Maybe sounds good, but we struggle to really feel it, to really believe it, and to activate it, to live it, because we just can't come across that line of thinking. If the church knew who I really was, if the church knew about my sin, they'd run me right out the door. They would not embrace me and restore me or they might take a hammer and just crush me and condemn me and make me feel so guilty that I either have to grovel to find my way back in, or I might as well just leave and not come back. I'm no longer welcome. Y'all, when I say that, that's not hypothetical for some of us. We've seen it. And maybe for some of us, we've actually experienced it personally. And in that case, I'm so sorry. But I want to say with absolute resolution here. That is not the way of Christ. That's not what the church does when we actually live and walk by God's Spirit. And so I want to say this, and I want want this to be true. I aspire for this to be true. I know we do. Harvest Church ought to be the very safest place in the world for a person to come in their sin, to address their sin, to come to know Christ and to grow in Him. Any any attitude that says, I can't go there until I've figured things out first, until I've gotten my act together first, what a shame. This ought to be the safest place in the world to deal with sin. But it's only going to happen if it's something we commit ourselves to as a whole. It's got to be who we all are together. And see, that's what verse 2 says. Verse 2, such a wonderful command. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That phrase, that's a, that's a new phrase. Paul introduces it, the law of Christ. What he's probably referring to is something he said back in chapter 5, that when we love our neighbor as ourself, when we serve one another through love, we fulfill the whole law. The law has love as its center and its core, and so we fulfill the law of Christ when we serve one another in love. Here he calls it bearing one another's burdens. And remember, the context here is in our sin and our weakness. When we're caught in trespass, when we're battling temptation, when we've fallen and we're struggling to find the strength to get back up, Paul says, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's weaknesses, you who are strong. Pick up those who are without strength and don't just please yourself. That's from Romans. That's what we're called to be. And so, y'all, we can say this with absolute confidence that in the Bible, you'll never find a place in the Bible where the church is commanded to just be nice. Just be nice. And, y'all, niceness is great. That's better than the alternative. I want to be nice. I want to have a nice church, but that's not the command of the Scripture. Be nice, but don't get too close. You don't have to get too close. Be cordial, but you don't have to go too deep. You'll never find that in God's Word. Y'all, the image the Bible gives us, actually, it looks a lot more like the image we put on the screen a minute ago of the martial offensive line hoisting their brother up on their shoulders, bearing his burden, a burden that he could not bear for himself, and carrying him forward down the field for his own sake and for theirs as a whole. It was for the team, not just for him. It wasn't every man for himself. And it can't be that way here. See you next Sunday. Good luck until we meet again. That's not the church. And so this is, this has to be a conviction of my own heart. And it is, especially when I prepare to preach on it, because I realize how, how uh, short I fall. But y'all, let's just, we can confess this. I'll start. I don't like burdens. Burdens are heavy. Burdens are messy and time-consuming. And I'll tell you what, I don't like being a burden. And if I ever felt like I was being a burden, it would destroy me. I don't want to bother you. I don't want to ask for anything. I don't want to come from a position of need. But that might be, of course, that's why we're prone to show up on Sunday mornings, smiling and well put together, even if we're being crushed by the burdens of life or sin or whatever else. I won't show it. I won't reveal it. I won't say it out loud because I don't want to be a burden. And therefore, I just live dishonestly. Have you ever done that? But y'all, if, if, if we believe the Scripture, and if we sincerely believe that the Bible calls us the household of God, we'll see that in a minute, the family of God, members one of another, if I actually believe that, if you believe that, then y'all, the church should be for us like an oasis in the desert, like a warm fireplace in a world of bitter cold. The church ought to be that for us that we actually delight to lift each other up on our shoulders and bear one another's burdens. It's, it's something we do eagerly, not under compulsion. Y'all, if we really believe what the scripture says, and if the spirit is at work in our hearts, that is not a burden to us. That's a joy that we get to love one another well. Y'all, we've got to move on in the, in the scripture, but I just I wanna speak this encouragement to us just loud and clear this morning. To all of us who sin and who suffer, you are not a burden to Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says, cast all your burdens upon him because he cares for you. That's how his shoulders are available to us. Put it all on him, the Bible says. And the church ought to be the same way. Where sinners are gently restored, where burdens are gladly carried. In other words, the church is just meant to reflect Jesus. And this is a great challenge to us because it requires all of us. This is not just the, the, the burden of an elite few or only the leaders or only those who have been around for a while, only those with more time on their hands. No, this is everybody's priority, that we would look at how Jesus has treated us and we would delight to let that grace spill over in how we treat each other. That's not a burden. That's a joy. That's a privilege. God's got to reorient our minds on that, perhaps. And a scripture like this will do it. Now, we're not going to labor quite as much on the next point. But Paul gives us something that's going to stand in the way of what he's just instructed us on. The bearing of burdens, the gentle restoration. How might that be derailed? It's a single word. It's pride. And you see that in verse 3. Pride will ruin this. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing. He deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work. Then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. So here's the threat. If the sins and suffering of others cause me to become proud and puffed up by comparison. Paul says, I'm self-deceived. If your sins and suffering and hardship create in me a sense of, well, I've got some problems, but at least I'm not like him. At least I've never done that. Then we have derailed this whole thing. Because for me, in this case, rather than me seeing my own sin, my own need, and humbly moving toward you, I've judged myself against you, and I've separated myself from you. I see it as a ladder now where I'm up on a little bit higher rung than you are. And maybe when you get your life together, you'll catch up. And y'all, that is the kind of pride that won't just mess up this scripture, it'll destroy the church in whole. And that's why when when Paul says, um, we shouldn't use the sins and burdens of another to judge ourselves against them, to fuel our own sense of pride and self-assurance, the reason is because God is the ultimate judge. And that's what it means when Paul says, each one must bear his own load. That's not a contradiction to bearing each other's burdens. He's talking about something different here. That as as I esteem myself in the eyes of others and try to be somebody, I do not stand in the eyes of God. Right? He He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be what? Brought low, humble. We don't have cause for pride in the eyes of God. And therefore we can't esteem ourselves in the eyes of the church. There's no reason for that. We don't judge ourselves in regard to one another. That's the kind of pride that will poison the church and this grace that we're called to show one another. If we see people in sin and suffering, a prideful person will not be drawn in, will be repelled because I don't wanna get dirty. And Paul says, that's not the church pride will kill us. We bear one another's burdens in humility and love. Now y'all, at this point, the scripture takes a slight turn, and I'm, I'm just going to acknowledge that this should have been two sermons, okay? So forgive me on this, all right? But it, it was Thursday, and it was too late to make, you know, the change. So here we are. Um, at the, the sermon's going to change a little a little bit, but it's the same principle. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit as the church, okay? Paul's going to give us, I'm going to break this down into three quick concepts here that all kind of enfold together. Paul's going to show us the need to share, to sow, S-O-W, to sow, and to serve. Share, sow, and serve. Look at verse 6. Share. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, y'all, this is, this is Paul saying we ought to support those who lead and teach us. And this includes, but is not limited to, uh, financial support. And so there, there is a biblical category, I'm going to be brief with this. <clears throat> There's a biblical category where those who work hard as pastors, as elders, as shepherds of the church, the church in turn supports these people to free them up to fulfill their calling for ministry. Okay? Two quick points I want to share on, on this specific scripture, okay? The first is, you notice in Paul's language, there's a willingness and a joy implied in this. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things. That is a generous, willing sharing there. Uh, This is not a tax on the church. Paul says we don't give under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And so with that, in saying that the, ch- the church is not taxed for the sake of supporting our leaders, we understand, I hope, that the pastors of Harvest Church, in this case, we shouldn't view the pastors here as paid employees. Now, the IRS does, but the Bible doesn't see us that way. The Bible sees the men who shepherd the flock of God, who keep watch over the souls of the flock. That is a calling That is a strengthening and equipping and appointing that the the Spirit of God produces and provides. And so I just want to say that as as point two, speaking, and I can say this on behalf of our pastors of Evan and Aaron. Y'all, this is something we're called to do and that we're glad to do, regardless of salary. But thank you. (laughs) Thank you with all sincerity. Sincerity. that we have a church that graciously and generously supports our pastors to free us up, to support our families, to make it possible for us to give our lives to the calling of the ministry. It really is a calling, and we are so thankful that we get to live it out here. So Paul says part of God's spirit leads us as a church to share, right? He also says to sow, verse 7, and this is a powerful word right here, y'all. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now, y'all, for our, just for our own sake, I want to encourage you later today or sometime this week, go back and read chapter 5 of Galatians again because Paul gives the list at the end of the chapter, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Very practical lists. But this right here is the greater principle behind the lists. Paul says nobody turns their nose up at God. Nobody makes a fool out of God. No one mocks Him. Everything we sow we will also reap. Everything we do, all that we invest ourselves into, we will receive the outcome for it. You've heard this called karma. I call that nonsense. This is God, forgive me. This is a principle that God has sown into the fabric of the world from before the world ever existed because this is the character of God. It's called righteousness. Righteousness. And so, y'all, think about this. On one hand, if we sow to the flesh, if we invest in sin, we indulge in selfishness, we gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says, from the flesh, we reap a harvest of corruption. And, y'all, I hope we recognize the principle that's at work right here. You always harvest more than you sow. You always reap more than you plant. The consequences for our sin, it's never just a one-to-one issue that we sow one bad deed and somehow we only get back the payment for that one thing. No, Paul says we reap corruption. That is a poisoning and a disintegrating of our lives. That's to say that sin doesn't just harm me, it harms you. It harms the people around me. It puts us at enmity with God. We always reap more than we sow. And y'all, the crazy thing about this, every single person, just intuitively, every single person knows this principle is true. Whether that person's religious, whether they've ever opened a Bible, we all know it to be true. We reap what we sow, and yet we're prone to tell ourselves that in any given sin, I'll be the exception to that rule. This sin is harmless. No one gets hurt. No one's even going to know. Everybody else is fine with it. But see, this is why Paul brings us back to square one. He doesn't say no one mocks the church. He says, do not be deceived. No one mocks God. We will not stand before one another we will stand before God. If everyone else thinks it's fine, if nobody else ever knows about it, we don't answer to everyone else. We answer to him. And so nobody makes a fool out of God. Everything we sow comes back. Now, hey, good time to remind us that we celebrate the gospel here at Harvest Church. We don't tell ourselves, pick it up, get it straight, come back next Sunday and let us know how you did. That's never the message here. The message is that by faith in Jesus, we're no longer bound by our sin. We're no longer defined by the sinful flesh. We've been forgiven. We've been made free, free from sin, free from the penalty of sin. We no longer stand under the judgment of God because Jesus Christ has taken our judgment for us. And so we're now free from sowing to the flesh. And we're not just free in a sense that we're, we're kind of back at zero. You see the, the, the opposite side that Paul gives us? There's a glorious and positive side to this sowing. He says, those who sow to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When we walk by the Spirit, when we delight in doing what is good, when we live in joyful obedience to God, we are planting new seed that guarantees a fruitful Harvest. And y'all, just as before, same principle applies. We will harvest more than we sow. Whatever good thing we do, we receive back in greater and fuller measure. It's what Jesus calls treasure in heaven. Do not build up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal and where moth and rust destroy, but build up treasures in heaven which cannot be lost or corrupted. The things that we do by faith in God and for God's glory, are guaranteed by God to bear eternal fruit, fruit in this life and in the life to come, and a greater fruit than we can possibly imagine. And so Paul says, in light of that principle of sowing to the Spirit, he says, don't lose heart in doing what is good, for in due time you will reap if you do not grow weary. Y'all, I'm not a farmer. Are you shocked about that? I don't know, I don't know anything. But I know this. Think like a farmer for a minute. A farmer plants the seed, and the harvest is yet a long way off. And the planting is difficult, and the cultivating is difficult, and it involves great patience and agony at times, drought and flood, and all manner of difficulty that that eventually will pay off, but in the moment you can't see. And that's what Paul is trying to show us here. Don't ever lose heart in sowing to the Spirit. Never assume, y'all, that God, that His eye has left you or that God somehow has failed you in His promises. We will see the harvest fruit of everything we do acting in faith. Some of us uh, will see it in this life to some measure. All of it, beyond our comprehension, we'll see and enjoy in the life to come. That is God's guarantee. Everything we plant in faith, we will harvest with great joy. So then, verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household, of the faith. The final word we've got, uh, share, sow, and now serve. While we have opportunity, which I take to mean as long as we're living and breathing, we've got opportunity. Let us do good. In every place and to every person, especially, Paul says, to those who make up the family of the church. And notice again, the command is not to be nice and cordial and keep each other at arm's length. Y'all, niceness costs very little, and it often amounts to very little. To do good is something different. To do good means we humbly and very intentionally seek the good of others, to bless, to serve someone else. their good is our goal. that requires humility, that requires intentionality to do good. And Paul says, every opportunity we get, do it. And y'all, this is this is just how the church is meant to be. And so I, I mentioned this earlier, we depend on Jesus, but by his grace we also reflect him. that we reflect him in this room, we reflect him to one another and certainly to the watching world. And so I want to close with this. As those called to reflect Jesus, what is it that gives us this ability to begin with? Again, if we're just nice, well-meaning people, then we'll have a nice, well-meaning church. But we'll never actually bear the good fruit that the scripture is speaking about here. So how do we become something more? Y'all consider this. What makes us a church in the first place? It's the fact that Jesus came for us Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. To humble Himself, to empty Himself for our sakes. To lower Himself for our good. And so the church, we serve, we are servants by nature because we worship a Savior who came to serve. Who laid down His life for the good of the world. And because He came and gave His life as a ransom for sin because Jesus with all humility went to the cross In order to reconcile us to God, we're now able to reconcile as a church. To deal gently and humbly with each other, seeking to restore, seeking to bring back mercifully. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might bring us to God. Peter says. How has Jesus treated us? Now go and do likewise. That's the call. Y'all, even right now, in all of our weakness and our suffering and our struggling, what is Jesus doing? He's upholding us. He's bearing up on his shoulders our weakness by his mercy and strength. Jesus has never done you wrong. He's never left you to yourself. So we now as the church get to bear each other's burdens in reflection of the goodness of our Savior. The same grace we've been given, we now get to communicate one to another. Y'all, we could go on, but let's not. Let's just pray. I mean, you know, there's nothing in this present moment that we can do to apply this. That's going to come when we dismiss. But right now, this is something we have to pray for. We have to want And we have to trust also that when we pray for this, God, in his grace, actually answers this prayer. He's promised to do it. He's commanded it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about this. God will produce this in a church that wants it. And so I want us to pray that we would be the kind of church where life deep down is defined at the root by loving, gracious service. That we would be a people who don't just trust Jesus at an individual level, but we reflect Jesus together as we sow to the Spirit and as we treat one another with grace. So let's ask that the Lord would do that for Harvest Church. Father, will you encourage us together this morning? Lord, help us to believe what we've read and what we're being called to do. Lord, uh, this I, I trust that some of us we just struggle to even believe, Father, that you're gracious to us in our sin. Um, and it's certainly difficult for us to fathom, to grasp that, that others would be gracious to us in our sin. And so maybe, Lord, we're prone to, uh, to withdraw or to, to put on a, a face, to, to keep quiet, to keep hidden, and Father, I, I just I ask this morning, we ask today, Lord, would, would you root that out of us? And give instead, Lord, a, the, the warmth and the light and the grace and the mercy of Jesus to be our defining reality. That Lord, he has welcomed us and accepted us. We're now called to do the same for each other. Father, help us this morning to see um, that we're all, all, each one of us, we are in need of being mercifully restored. We are sinners. And we're also called to be spiritual people who joyfully, humbly restore others. Lord, let that be something that we don't shy away from, that we don't neglect, that we don't, in our pride kind of uh, separate ourselves from. But Lord, let us move toward one another. And Father, if if it's messy, if it's difficult, if it's humbling, then we praise you for that. Because none of those things, Lord, um, prevented you from sending your son on our behalf, from bringing him, Lord, down to us to serve us, and to sacrifice himself for us. So, Father, we, we ask, I, I pray for my own heart this morning, Lord, give, give me a radar, give, keep me on the lookout for burdens in the, in the lives of my brothers and sisters. And, Lord, may it never be that I would turn tail and run Lord, let's, let's move toward one another in grace. Let's love each other well. Let's restore each other, Father, for your glory and for our good. And perhaps, Lord, we'll be a, a shining light, a city on a hill, to a world that, that has no other category for this, Father. Your grace is, is, um, is unique Lord, I pray that we would be a peculiar and unique people as we show it forth. In Jesus' name, amen.